This is a Radio.com original. This is the Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. You might have seen the headlines. The U.S. government making a deal with two big pharmaceutical companies agreeing to pay nearly $2 billion for 100 million doses of a vaccine. We haven't developed one yet, but when it comes, is this the right path forward to gamble on a vaccine that isn't here quite yet instead of thinking about therapeutic approaches to COVID? Now, as the federal government is billions of taxpayer dollars into the development of coronavirus vaccines, pharmaceutical companies are intending to turn a profit. But just how profitable Will this vaccine-making business really be? Major League Baseball, the season kicking off. It's going to be interesting. We can put it that way. We'll talk with the Dodgers Uh, play-by-play man on what you can expect. Cardboard cutouts in the stands. (laughs) Many parents are part of a growing trend of boomerang kids, full-grown adult children in their 20s and 30s, moving back home. Now, you can blame the recession for it. If you want to take care of your finances while maintaining your multi-generation households, an expert suggests you make your kids sign a lease. Do it really early, too, like 6 a.m. when they don't want to get up. <laughs> yeah. like, Here you go. Sign this. <laughs> Pandemics have been around since uh, the dawn of civilization. Disease certainly a part of U.S. history. Yellow fever swept through big cities in the 1700s. One of our founding fathers was a physician, treated sick patients with that. You'll hear more about Dr. Benjamin Rush later on. The headlines this morning told of a nearly $2 billion deal between the feds and two big pharmaceutical companies to provide at least 100 million doses of an as yet undeveloped corona vaccine. But is the best hope for a return to normalcy still with therapies to treat COVID-19 rather than to vaccinate against it? Dr. Shane Crody, virologist and professor at the La Jolla Institute for Immunology. So is there going to be a therapy to treat this anytime soon that uh, you know about? Uh, that's a great question. Certainly having a, a, a therapy would be great. And in fact, I mean, the, 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 the clinical data on remdesivir was really quite solid that it, it you know, it, it does a good job helping to control disease and, and seriously ill, ill people. Um, you know, I, I think there are uh, production and, and supply chain problems with that as as well. In general, drugs to treat viral infections are are problematic because they're basically chasing the virus. The, the, the virus has already been there a while. People have already gotten sick, and so it is it is tough to have a drug that's successful. Um, when you only start taking it after you've already gone to the doctor and say, oh, you know, I've been feeling bad for four days. And like, well, drugs tend to work early. So therapies are frequently always kind of uh, chasing things. So whereas as, as vaccines are, are preventative, so it's really, you know, going all the way back to sort of, you know, Ben Franklin, you know, the Benjamin Franklin approach to fires is, uh, well, you prevent them instead of trying to put them out afterwards. Right? An ounce of prevention rather than a pound of cure. That's, the, that's, that's really the vaccine mantra. So that's why uh, we hear so much less about a treatment like we were talking about, like a Tamiflu or something that can help you ride it out at home. Is there hope for something like that being discovered? And would it be new def- or would it be something they pull off the shelf and say, oh, look, this works? Uh, at this point, it'd be something new. I mean, there, there's remdesivir that's that, that definitely has activity, and then there are variations of those that that, that people are developing as quickly as possible, and that, that 
that one can see scientific papers published on, you know, that are encouraging. But, uh, and then the other variation of that is to take actually an immunological approach, um, which is, so vaccines work on the basis of your immune system, right? Vaccines teach your body to recognize that virus and, and, and stop it. Um, and so uh, people are also turning that type of immune response into therapies by saying, well, wait, the vaccines elicit antibody responses. What if we just manufacture the antibodies and inject those into people as, as treatments? Um, and that, again, that, that has promised that, that can work in some uh, cases. And in fact, people have shown that they can treat some monkeys, for example, that, that have SARS-2 infections with, with antibodies. But it's the same thing where you're chasing the infection. You know, the, 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 the person is already infected. They're, they're pretty sick. And so it is a, um, a, a hard problem uh, compared to um, a vaccine being present in advance. Okay, so so then putting together sort of what I'm hearing you say, since since a lot of folks, when I say folks, I mean experts, are saying that realistically, if there is a successful vaccine or vaccines, we're really talking about a year and a half, maybe longer before it's available for mass inoculations. If that timetable is even remotely true, and if it is unlikely as you said, to, to have a therapeutic that can, tr- uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, chase a viral infection, then we're in this mess for what another couple of years? Yeah, so and it's this is this is uh, trying to give, uh, you know, do you, <laughs> do you want the glass half full answer first or the glass half empty answer first? Leave out, um, leave out the all... glass altogether. Just pour it on. <laughs> uh, I mean, there are. Uh, there are therapeutics that, that, that potentially have a chance at that. You know, in making antibodies, uh, people are pushing as fast as possible to to identify antibodies that might work and get those into animal models and get those into manufacturing quickly. And people know how to manufacture antibodies, estimate their cost, and roll them out. And so I think those are the things that you're hearing therapeutics experts saying is that, you know, we think there is a path for therapeutics to be successful. And, and, and I'm definitely all... All for that, and uh, in terms of vaccines, um, certainly a lot of wise scientists are saying silent about the current clinical trial results because that it, it is well known, you know, in, in our field that historically it is hard to make a successful vaccine. Vaccines are extraordinarily valuable. Like like the measles vaccine alone has saved 14 million lives in the past 10 years. Okay. That's amazing. But vaccines tend to take a long time to develop. So historically, it's frequently 10 to 20 years, say, to develop a vaccine. That's, you know, that's not what you want to hear right now about (laughs) SARS-2. But it, it does really come down to the specifics about the virus, you know, how hard is the virus to stop? And there are a lot of, of vaccine technologies that people have been working on over the past decade that really are quite promising. And in fact, a lot of the uh, a lot of the news, you know, this past week has really been about newer vaccine technologies that that do have the capacity to move. Doctor, you've you've, uh, da- you've danced around that quite nicely. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> It'll take time, whatever it is. Dr. Shane Crody, virologist, professor, La Jolla Institute for Immunology. Doc, thanks. The nearly $2 billion deal between the federal government and two pharmaceutical companies may be just the beginning. As other companies are racing to develop a coronavirus vaccine, There could be significant profits that developers are hoping for.
the economics of a COVID vaccine, including how much it is going to cost, will likely determine how quickly we can get a shot. Dr. Michael Kinch directs the Centers for Research Innovation in Biotechnology and Drug Discovery at Washington University in St. Louis. Before joining academia, he worked on drug developments for biotechs. So selling vaccines could be moneymakers. A lot of people think, though, no, during the pandemic, vaccines should be free. We need them. So which side wins? Well, actually, the way it's presented, neither side wins. Um, vaccines are generally not big moneymakers. And the problem with that is that that's part of the reason why so many different companies have left the vaccine space. And as a matter of fact, when you look at most of the companies that are developing COVID vaccines, they were actually developing vaccines for cancer, and which does is a lucrative market and, and does get high um, amounts of money and, and lots of profit. And most of them sort of retooled and then started to use the same technologies to go with COVID. Um, but for infectious diseases, unfortunately, vaccines really don't make much money. And as a consequence, we were caught rather flat-footed. Color me suspicious, though, that I still think they couldn't find a way to make some money off of this. Even if you have big names saying, you know, our first round, all the doses we're going to send out, we're going to do it for free. But if it starts to look like you're going to need something and then get booster shots later on, or maybe you need two or three of these, do they start charging for those second and third rounds? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, you're right that if this becomes a prolonged situation, they will find a way to make a profit out of it. But I think coming out of the gate, for the most part, these infectious diseases are not all that profitable. But you hit it on the head. The real concern is going to be after we get past this sort of panic phase, what is a vaccine going to cost in the not too distant future? If you look, for example, at the human papillomavirus vaccine, um, that now goes for nearly $1,000 a person, and that's not cheap. And and isn't there an argument to be made that, that a lot of these vaccines, the initial seed money to do research, whether it was because of COVID or because they were working on something else and that kind of morphed into the development of a, a COVID vaccine, a lot of that came from taxpayer money, didn't it? Yes. As a matter of fact, we published a study a few years ago which showed that greater than, I think it was 97% of the drugs approved in the last 20 or 30 years have uh, come from NIH funding. And um, what, that is a key point, which is that that very early discovery work generally tends to be taxpayer-funded, government-funded. But keep in mind that if you believe the numbers, and I think I do, um, it costs something on the order of about $2 billion nowadays to develop a new drug or vaccine. And most of that is actually borne by the private sector. How do you think we end up seeing the marketplace for the, and I guess I use marketplace in this way, if we hit on two or three of these, because, you know, there are so many that are being worked on, do you just try and get to your doctor and hope that he has the one that's the most effective, or maybe you just need one dose instead of two? Well, I think it's going to play out over time. Um, if you had a, a magic ball to look into the future, Five, 10 years from now, there'll probably be a single dominant vaccine that will hopefully be a single shot and you're done. But since we're rushing things, and frankly, because science is really hard and, and developing drugs and vaccines is particularly hard, we will probably have what I refer to as an imperfect vaccine at first. And hopefully, over time, it'll get better and better. But let's say they, they you end up with, I don't know, three different vaccines from three different companies that are certified as being 
somewhat effective. They help. I think, uh, uh, I believe Dr. Fauci at one point had said that he would accept a vaccine that has about a, I think he said a 60%, something like that efficacy uh, rate. Uh, so let's say you had three vaccines that kind of reached that level. As a consumer, is it the kind of thing that you go to your doctor and say, I don't know, I was reading about this one, I saw this one on TV, give me that one? Well, uh, it may end up being availability, but the reality of how these things work is that most likely the doctor is, unless they're very much up to date, isn't necessarily going to be able to guide you. So all of us are going to have to look very hard at the results. And I've been asked by a number of different news uh, organizations over the last couple months, what would I look for? And, and clearly the first thing will be safety. Um, does it have a safety tolerance that is acceptable to my particular medical condition? And all of us should be asking that. And then the question is going to quickly turn to how well does it work? And again, in these early days, it's likely that we're going to have imperfect vaccines or perhaps vaccines where the safety is such that maybe those who are uh, comparatively weak shouldn't take one particular vaccine because it may have rough side effects, whereas another group could take it. So we are going to be learning on the fly as we go along. Dr. Michael Kinch directs the Centers for Research, Innovation, Biotechnology, Drug Discovery, Washington University in St. Louis. The biggest challenge for Major League Baseball teams in the COVID-shortened season that kicks off tomorrow probably won't be winning the World Series. It's going to be simply keeping their players healthy and infection-free. In fact, before the season is even underway, several high-profile players came down with the coronavirus. This when teams came back together at the start of this month for training. So you got to keep them healthy. You got to keep them tested. Then there's playing the games in front of empty stadiums. There's the piped-in crowd noise. The short 60-game season. It's going to be weird. Charlie Steiner's the play-by-play announcer for the and LA the audience Dodgers. is in a hush. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to them cheer. Listen to those cardboard cutouts scream. Uh, The Dodgers kick off their season tomorrow against the Giants. Charlie, it's going to be strange, but at least we're going to have some baseball. It's going to be good, and it's going to be weird, and after that, who knows? (laughs) We've just gone through three exhibition games. Exhibition games are always rather taxing for broadcasters and writers because they're exhibition games. This was more taxing because there was nobody in the stands except a bunch of cutouts. Uh, now, with this 60-game season, we always hear baseball's a marathon and not a sprint. This year, it is a standing start sprint. Uh, how is this all going to play out? Who knows? I mean, who knows what's going on from one day to the next away from baseball, much less what it's going to be like on the field. My first question continues to be, how will these players, all of them, react with nobody in the stands? How much fire in the belly will they have? Certainly there's urgency to win in a shortened season, as there is urgency to win over 162 games. But we're going down a path none of us have been before. So this is fascinating. Uh, you know, For better or worse, it's historic. And uh, this is one of those paths we're all going to take together, and where it leads us, who knows? So explain exactly how you think this is going to work. (laughs) Are you asking me or Dr. Fauci? (laughs) (laughs) No, the question's to you. How, I mean, when people tune in, what are they going, what is it going to be like? Uh, Well, again, I've got a unique set of circumstances because quite literally I'm going to be broadcasting from home. Um, 
it, it, the first three exhibition games that we did, it's it's weird. You know, the piped-in crowd noise such that it is, I kind of liken it to walking along the ocean, finding a shell, putting the shell to your ear, and you think you're hearing the ocean. Um, and yeah, it's kind of there in the background. Yeah, and, and so... Again, there's so much to this. Anybody who's going to try and predict how this is all going to play out, how it's going to look and sound, um, this is. We are all a work in progress. You know, I would always say, you know, he's listed as day to day, but then again, aren't we all? We really are. Um, baseball, no exception. So this is all new. It's unique, um, and hopefully, uh, we'll see some. Uh, terrific baseball players are being tested what like every other day and then hoping the results come back in time I mean, what if a team's results don't come back in time for a game <laughs> you know i was on the phone with some mlb folk yesterday and, and the reality is they're no different than anybody else we'll see how all this plays out we don't know um what happens if a star a series of stars happen to get sick um, I don't think they're terribly worried about necessarily the, the Dodgers at home, but uh, they go to Houston and Arizona, another COVID hot spot. Spots we don't know. We just hope that everybody is healthy, and this grand experiment, the boys in the bubble, uh, are are clean. Doing what you need to do from home, Charlie, does it change in any way how you do it? Does it do you, have, you must have a different feel about it. Everything, it, it, it's entirely weird. You know, I had said to the Dodgers last week I wasn't feeling really good about going to the stadium. I am, you know, I'm a hanging curveball in the, in the world of COVID-19. <laughs> and, and to the Dodgers' credit, and I thank them every time I, I talk to them, and I said, I'm not sure I can do this. The next day they came back and said, what if you did it from home? And I didn't think it was humanly or technically even possible to do it. And they basically set up, I've got three massive screens in what used to be my living room, and now it's a media room. Um, and, and so, again, my exhibition season, such that it was, uh, was a work in progress, but I think it's going to work out fine. Uh, you know, the the sound and uh, uh, the pictures are pretty well in sync. Uh, Rick Monday and I have been working together going on 16 years, and somebody asked me the other day, well, you're not going to be able to look at them. Well, during the game, we're not looking at each other anyway. We're watching the <laughs> watch field. The, <laughs> the only time we look at one another is between innings, and we roll our eyes and shrug our shoulders and get ready for the next inning. Um, so I don't think that's going to be an issue. Uh, what has been, again, over uh, three exhibition games, um, it, it's more of a technical process for me, uh, which screen to look at for what and when. Um, but again, this is something we're all going to find out together. Yeah, I, I think maybe that's the motto for even watching the games or listening to them from home. It's going to be different, but you just got to live to enjoy what you can because it's a new normal kind of thing, uh, at least for now. I want to circle back to what you said about the shortened season because if every game counts for two or two and a half normally, somebody gets on a little bit of a streak. I mean, this could be anybody's championship. There's still going to be a trophy at the end. We know that. Absolutely. You know, somebody pointed out last night that 
every two weeks from now till the end of the season is a quarter of the season. And so there is a greater sense of urgency, to be sure. Um, and then the question is, and, and the Dodgers look great. Uh, they they really do. Um, and now with uh, Piers Mookie Betts is going to be here for the rest of our natural lives. Um, one through nine, and with the designated hitter, the Dodgers are stacked. But, for instance, in a big prize fight, when the, the champion is – uh, controlling the fight, but the underdog is still in it. There's always that lucky punch or bad break or whatever the case may be. Yeah. All things being equal, 60 games with the team that the Dodgers have. I think they're the best in the National League. And now let's play. Got to ask you before we let you go, your thoughts on uh, who's getting that first pitch for the Nationals. I mean, Dr. Fauci's going to walk out there. That's going to be something to watch. You know, I will be home watching, and I will get out of my Barco lounger and give him a standing ovation. <laughs> All right, Charlie, thanks so much for the time. A Pew Research Center study from 2012 says nearly 30% of parents say their adult children moved back home because of the economy. Now, can you imagine what the number would be like now during the pandemic-induced recession, given the growing trend of boomerang kids? Experts say parents should make living arrangements with adult children moving back in with them. Tony Ogorek, founder of Ogorek Wealth Management in Buffalo, New York, joined WBBM's Cisco Cotto. He recommends parents make a lease arrangement with those adults' kids. Tony, it, it seems like that would be an awkward conversation, and yet it sounds like it's one that maybe parents should have. Well, Cisco, I think it depends on the parents' relationship with the kids. Uh, if they got a good relationship, they're probably not going to be... Uh, you know, uh, hitting them up for funds. <laughs> but if they've got, a, if they're having a tough time with them and they want to nudge them out, uh, they may want to use it as sort of a wedge issue. Um, here are a few of the points that I think people really need to take a look at when they consider that type of decision. You know, the first is that you know the forbearance on student loans is going to be ending on September 30th, which means that for uh, most everyone who's got a student loan, they're going to have to start making uh, you know payments in October. Um, you know, second, there may be, um, you know, a lot of existing uh, uh, students, you know, they may be on a lease already, you know, for an apartment or for a shared apartment with someone else, which means they've got to make those payments, whether or not they've got money, and then heaping another payment on top of them um, could be tough. Um, another thing to think about, their parents, you know, may have been furloughed or may have been terminated, and with that, it becomes a termination of their health insurance, which then means that the student may not have access to health insurance, which means they may need, be, need to be out of pocket, you know, for medical expenses, you know, which may affect some of the students. And, and finally, you know, if they were fortunate enough to get a job, um, you know, usually it's the uh, last hired, first fired, and they're generally going to be on the line, uh, you know, in the first wave of, uh, of firing. So, you know, for those reasons, you know, it could be tough to try and make uh, a lease payment uh, stick from their parents. And so is this uh, more about, you know, this legal contract, uh, you know, is it that, or is it, hey, we just want you to know there's going to be some rules here if you're moving back home. It's not like when you were in junior high or high school. 
Oh, yeah, you know, for sure. I mean, there's an expectation. And don't forget, you know, Cisco, as you know, being older people such as us, everything comes down to time or money, right? So if you don't have the money, you've got the time, which means there are certain chores, certain expectations that you're going to be handling things to make life a little bit easier for us, you know? And also I think it's important to be able to have your own areas, which means you need time apart. And, uh, uh, you know, again, during a time like this, um, I, I think it's a time of sacrifice for a lot of people, and you know students need to understand that also. And, and you know hopefully they step up, and if they can't pay, um, you can contribute that way. There are a host of other things they can do to make life easier for their parents. The United States, no stranger to health emergencies. Obviously, 2020 is the year of the coronavirus pandemic. But you know, there was a Spanish flu that was in 1918. Also in 1793, and I remember that one, yellow fever was devastating. And in the center of that storm was this guy named Dr. Benjamin Rush. He was a physician, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and one of this country's founding fathers. Stephen Freed is the author of Rush, Revolution, Madness, and Benjamin Rush, the visionary doctor who became a founding father. He spoke with KYW's Matt Leon about Dr. Rush and the founding of public health. For people that aren't familiar, give us a, a quick idea of who Dr. Benjamin Rush was. Sure. Dr. Benjamin Rush is sort of the, uh, the founder who people haven't found yet. He uh, clearly belongs in the pantheon of the top founders, but part of the reason he didn't end up being one was because he was uh, not only a signer of the Declaration of Independence and a close friend of Adams, Jefferson had close relationships, not always easy with uh, Washington and Hamilton, but he also was a keeper of a lot of their secrets. A lot of the letters that they wrote that were most revealing about what they felt um, about politics, about religion, about their own health, uh, were in the Rush's possession when Benjamin Rush died. The Rush family was really scared to let his legacy come out the way that maybe it should have. So his letters were suppressed. He had written an autobiography, um, which was also suppressed because the family was afraid it was very, um, it was open about what he thought about Washington, which at that time was sacrilege. As a physician, he was right in the middle, as we go through our a pandemic. He was right in the middle of a health emergency in Philadelphia, yellow fever, yes. 1793. Now, yellow fever was not new in 1793. It was something that, you know, you'd have, but it was terrible in 1793. This really ripped through and he was front and center in that, correct? He was by that time in the early 1790s, by that time, first of all, the, you know, people forget that the U.S. Capitol was in Philadelphia from 1790 to 1800. Philadelphia, which had been the center of America up until this point, really was the center of America. And Rush was the leading doctor in the country. He was running what had become the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. He was, I guess, a combination of like your Fauci and your Surgeon General and your, you know, well-known doctor. People would send him letters to diagnose them by mail. So in 1762, he was involved as a young trainee doc with the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia. It was relatively small. But he knew what it was. Yellow fever was something that would periodically show up in these port towns. It was not unknown. However, the 1793 epidemic was so much bigger than any yellow fever epidemic in history. And again, it was the U.S. Capitol. Okay, so you're talking August of 1793. The president's coming back. The Congress is coming back. 
biggest city in America, most important financial city in America. Rush kept an amazing chronicle of it. I mean, he wrote to his wife who was in, his wife was um, Julia Stockton. So Julia was home with her family during the yellow fever epidemic and Rush was in Philadelphia. His house was turned into a hospital because Pennsylvania hospital wouldn't take yellow fever patients because they, no one knew if it was contagious or not and they didn't want to kill everybody in the hospital. So Rush's house became um, a hospital. People were sort of laying over every piece of furniture. And, you know, one of the hallmarks of yellow fever is, is, is this horrible black vomit. Like you turn yellow, your eyes turn yellow, and then you, you vomit this horrible black stuff. So you can only imagine what Rush's house was like, you know, what they were dumping into his garden in the back. It's not surprising that after yellow fever, his wife wanted to move immediately. He wrote letters almost every day to Julia, and we have them. And they, they form an amazing story. One of the things that's been very cool is that as soon as COVID started, I saw a doctor who was a former head of the American Medical Association who was reading my book. And he actually took a picture of a page of the book, which had one of the things that Rush had written to Julia, which he thought was inspiring. And he thought that other first responders should see this. The San Diego Comic Con, one of the world's biggest comic book conventions, kicking off today. And just like everything else right now, it's looking different this year. This year's event is named Comic Con at Home, and it allows uh, comic book and pop culture fans to celebrate dozens of panels, workshops, and exhibits safely during the pandemic inside their own home. Now, this is the first ever virtual event for the big convention, which typically attracts more than 100,000 people to San Diego. Another first, the entire online convention is free. Comic-Con at Home runs today through Sunday. Thank you for listening. Listen to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. We should have a virtual audience, just like Facebook. Yeah. We should. Keep us company. Let's get applause at the end. (laughs) Thank you.